come with me into the tormented, haunted, half-lit night of the insane. This is my work. Let me lead you into it. Let me take you into the mind of a woman who is mad. Hi, and welcome to Beyond the Cabin in the Woods, a good ghoul's guide to horror. I'm your polter guide, Kinsey. I'm your polter guide, Donna. I'm your polter guide, Adrian. David Stevie here, coming to you from Los Angeles. Thank you guys for having us. Oh, I'm, I'm your guest polter guide, Britton Spellings. Oh, right. I was supposed to say that. I'm your guest polter guide, <laughs> David Stevie. <laughs> We've been promising something special for a couple episodes now, and here we go. We've got some special guests. I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> So, so um, David, Stevie, and and Britton, I don't, I, my my buddy Britton, we're on a first name basis now. <laughs> cool. uh, you guys worked on Behind the Mask: The Rise of Leslie Vernon. Indeed, we did. Which you guys, listeners, guys, might remember that we finally covered last week because we somehow had not done that. What I know, right? Man. Which is super weird because when we were naming this podcast, Behind the Mask was a big contender. Like every this, episode could have been behind, you know, this could have been behind Manhunter. Yeah, oh, exactly. Yeah. Wow. Well, beyond works. I mean, I think, you know, we were definitely beyond as a forward looking title. I, I, I approve of either. But man, yeah, that, that movie was what, 15 years ago now. It took you a while to get a podcast up on it. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out, though, there's a lot of horror movies and they keep making more. So what did we do this time? We did the uh, 1986 Michael Mann Manhunter. So I guess let's, you know, go around. Did you like it? Did you not like it? Had you seen it before? I'd never seen this before. The serial killer genre is not my usual genre. I prefer more supernatural horror. But um, I really liked this, which I think might actually be a shock to everybody since I hate all things. Um, This was really, really good. But this thing had some things that I know are in your wheelhouse, like the one the it's hard eighties and like the music, like that, that, <laughs> so I, I can see why. I was into this soundtrack. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh Britain. I have seen it. Uh I saw it many, many years ago. Like it, it kind of was a, a big deal because the Thomas Harris novel was was a big deal and this got made relatively quickly. You know, Thomas Harris novel was in eighty one and this was in eighty six. So they probably were filming it at least in 85. So that's a pretty quick turnaround. Um, and I remember being excited. The guy that made it was Miami Vice, you know, pedigree and all that. And so I was, I was excited to see it when it came out and I enjoyed it. I mean, it's definitely dated. It's, it's, uh, you know, there's an answering machine in there. The guy smokes in an elevator in a hotel. I mean, it's definitely dated. But yeah, I enjoyed it. The telex machine, like he gets a fax on the plane. Like <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, I mean, it's certainly stylized. It's it's sort of exactly what I remember of the Michael Mann heyday of like Miami Vice and Band of the Hand and all that stuff. Uh, it was like a two hour long episode of Miami Vice, yep. complete with the soundtrack. You know, the overly loud music you know <laughs> synthesizer music during a weird love making scene you know just very stylized but i did enjoy it it made me feel 14 again yeah all right what about you david britain stole my answer um 
I, uh, you go first. man, I, I, if I can find it right now, there is, I, I was just back in, in Wisconsin visiting family and there was a photograph taken of me, which I think will answer a lot of questions. Oh, please let me find it. Please um, be I can't believe I found it. I, I wanted to be Sonny Crockett from Miami Vice in every possible way. I don't know if you can see. Oh, that that's, is fantastic. Oh, look at that. That's me chilling out with my white shirt. I mean, my white, uh, I had white shoes on, the whole thing. I wanted to be Sonny Crockett in every possible way. And so anything that Michael Mann did, I was in. The real star of that picture is how much that cat loves you. She was the meanest cat ever, actually. That, um, <laughs> that's, oh, you know what? No, sorry. That's a stuffed animal. That is a stuffed animal cat. Oh, it is. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I like, though, that you at that age had the foresight, like, no, I need another prop that's yeah. going to really bring yeah. this together. And I'm reading the magazine. Yeah, it was all there. But <laughs> no. I feel like we're getting off track. The um, <laughs> So Manhunter, to me, was like, of course, it's Michael Mann. It's Miami Vice, like Britton said. So I was completely in. I didn't really expect, I don't think I was prepared for like the sort of intellectual level of it. I don't know if I appreciated that until I sort of watched it again. Um, and I agree with Britton on the on the stylized part of it. I mean, the the lighting of it is also another thing I'm sure we'll cover, just the thematic structure of the way Michael Mann used blues and greens. It was pretty great. Um, and I, I think the script itself was really sort of um, economical. Like, I, I, there weren't like there weren't a lot of long monologues, and the killer didn't like have a big grandiose speech. And I don't know. I just I liked on second viewing. You know, recently, I, I just I'm surprised how well it holds up, even though it's really really dated. All right, Donna. This was not my favorite, but I have to admit I'm having a hard time existing in a reality where Adrian likes something, so I'm kind of <laughs> on shaky ground here. It, this was not my favorite, and I think it's because I took an instant dislike to Will Graham, and it's kind of hard to like the movie if you don't like the dude who's in all the scenes. So, um, but I was I was into it. I know I just said I didn't like it, but I was I was into it by the end. I was sitting up. I was. You know, I was really into what was going on. So, eh, okay. See, Will Graham was perfect because I was like, he's pretty and he's troubled. All the boxes checked. <laughs> and, and and pink shorts and tank tops. It was great. I did like his wardrobe choices. I have to admit, those little the little <laughs> short shorts. Those were the shortest shorts. Oh my gosh, especially at the end. Yeah. You see how tan he was? Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's some skin cancer in waiting right there. <laughs> I overall enjoy this movie. If I'm going to watch a movie based on the book, I'm this is not my first choice, but I appreciate it for its style and that it is very well done, but I, I had a good time with it. There are definitely things I like, which I know we'll get into, uh, and things I'm like, yeah, this is definitely very 80s, but uh, I don't hate it, so. I think I think we got you guys three, two. I think it's three to two. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and you got me, and that's weird. Yeah, you were the, you were the swing vote, apparently. <laughs> no, you don't understand what kind of alternate reality this is with Adrian being like, no, man, this is, all of this is great. She hates everything. Yeah, the subtitle of this podcast is Beyond the Cabin in the Woods, Adrian Hates Everything. <laughs> what is your favorite thing, and what is your least favorite thing out of all the things that you've reviewed? Wow. Um, I think that... Probably, I love Event Horizon, 
And I think I threw down to do that movie. Really, though, I really liked The Boys in the Trees. That was good. That was another movie that I fought to do. Um, my least favorite thing has been anything The Conjuring adjacent, <laughs> including The Conjuring. Fuck all of those movies. All right. All right. You did think What's-His-Name was pretty in The Nun, though. Oh, yes. He was very pretty. And I would have watched a movie about him. But, um, man, and, you know, I even like, I'm not going to say her name right, Taza, starts with a V, from American Horror Story. I even really like her, and I was just, oh, man, I don't know. The Nun was just a real, do you think Billy can get that sound to come out right? That's that's my official review of The Nun. That's a cat hairball sound was (laughs) what that was. Just fully that in later. Okay, so this movie, though, Manhunter, so let's get into it spoilers yeah yeah we're definitely in spoiler territory so if you haven't seen it i want to start with just that opening like that's such a great cold open on a movie it's so creepy they revisit it pretty well when you know they have him going back through the scene and and whatnot you know Mm -hmm. it's it's a pretty cool it's a quick turnaround from when the open and they make it way just a little bit to where he finds the scene or whatever but it's a it is a really cool opening yeah I agree. And I think the way um, the way they paid that off, too, I appreciated the fact that, you know, you, you see it at the cold open. You're like, OK, a creepy guy going up the stairs like we all have a horror background. But the way that 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 scene evolves, like the way Britton mentioned that they revisited it, I found that when I revisited, when he starts going up the stairs, you know, two thirds of the way through the movie, like it, you it's almost like I slipped into uh, Will's sort of character mindset like it. it, it the opening was great, but then to revisit it as sort of a changed viewer was really, really a cool effect. That I—that's how I experienced it. Because you're seeing it through Will's eyes now. But who, like, but he's see seeing it. it. But he's seeing it through the Tooth Fairy's eyes. So it's yeah, like right. this meta level, and I just love that stuff. Well, and also the differences they make in those two scenes, because you know the original one is all dark and it's like lit by the flashlight. And I love, like, also I love the way she wakes up with the flashlight. Like that's just so great. But then whenever Will's going through it and it's broad daylight and it's like it's so different but also just i don't know it's just it's a really good opening it's probably like title sequences aside that's one of my favorite openings i think can, can we start before the opening actually because yeah I, yeah I what, pretty what interesting how the film kind of the the history of the film uh in terms of who's in it and, and all that like because like we said before it's, a, it's based on an 81 novel and it got released in 86 which is pretty quick turnaround but think about the people who made it and where they were in their careers you know this is michael mann he's you know he did thief with uh james Kahn in what like 81 or something like that which is pretty well regarded but you know you've got tom noonan's in there and he hadn't done a lot of stuff uh dennis farina i think this is his first movie he was a chicago cop michael mann's from chicago dennis farina's from chicago williams peterson was a stage actor in Chicago, and he had just done To Live and Die in L.A. He hadn't done anything before that, really. Uh, so it was kind of, a you know, Brian Cox had been in a lot of stuff, but this was clearly kind of a breakout thing for him. We started seeing him in everything from, you know, the 80s and 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just think it's it's really cool how it all came together at these people's different times in their career. And and on that note, too, Britain, also the um, you can see the, the Miami Vice we were talking earlier, you know, uh, the Miami Vice footprint. So... Farina had been in Miami Vice, I think, at that point for Michael Mann. Um, Michael Talbot was the real estate agent, like the blink and you miss it role, where 
Will goes into the house and the real estate agent is, you know, showing them the house. That Michael Talbot was a series regular on Miami Vice. Um, Bonnie Timmerman, the casting director, she did all the Miami Vice stuff. She's obviously gone on to be a very incredibly successful casting director. Uh, she Jim did Grace this. was in, in Miami Vice, the woman that plays Molly. His okay, wife. that's where I know her then. Because like, as I was watching that, I'm like, how do I know her? She did kind of a bunch of heavy lifting in the 80s and then retired pretty soon after that. Of the few notes I wrote down, though, my very favorite is that was fucking Chris Elliott. It was <laughs> right. That's right. Yeah. Oh, shit. <laughs> who, else, who else has a, a bit role in it? If you're a fan of The Wire, Chief Irvin Burrell is part of the uh, the the police. Uh, he was the the police guy doing all the searching for the IDs, right? Yeah, exactly. That was uh, mm -hmm. the Chief of Police from The Wire. His name <laughs> is Frankie Faison, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, and he's also in. Silence of the Lambs, Hannibal, like he's Barney. And I think he's also in Red Dragon as well. So he's in all four films. He's the killer. <laughs> it's him. <laughs> it's him. But yeah, no. And this kind of going back to casting, I think this was Joan Allen's second film because Peggy Sue Got Married, I think, was her first one. Like, I know she is super young in this. Yeah. And not blind. And not blind. <laughs> she did a good job. She did. I'm glad you said that about this this being her second film, though, because one of the things that irritated me a little bit was that Joan Allen's kind of a badass, and she was just so helpless in this film. But this being her second film, maybe she hasn't quite established herself as the force that, that she will be. Yeah, I was going to say, this is not the Joan Allen we know today. By... Well, she's also cast in a victim role. You know? Yeah, I didn't really think of her as being that helpless. I thought of the editing as making things look longer than they actually were. And she's not helpless. But she's, yeah. you know, in that scene where he's just kind of toying with her. And are you there? Say something. And she actively goes out. She doesn't cower in the corner. She actively goes to where she, she thinks he last was and ends up in the corner. You know, she's, yeah. she's active. She's not, she's not a milk toast. Yeah, she's not, so, she's not laying on the railroad tracks, I agree. She, I, she, and she was brave enough to get in the van with the guy in the first place. You know, she's touching tigers. She's doing all kinds of stuff. Man, if you haven't, if you haven't seen this movie, that's the weirdest thing. She's getting in a van. She's touching touch tigers. She's hiding in a corner. That's <laughs> <laughs> out of context. Um, also, she gets off at the table. Like, as soon as, um, as Graham jumps through the plate glass window, she, like, rolls off the table. And I remember noticing that. Because I was like, oh, man, I think a lot of movies would have had her stay where she was. Petrified yeah. here. Yeah. Okay. I retract my comment. <laughs> no, for, for, uh, for this type of movie and being set in the 80s, she is definitely not your typical victim, if you will. I, I don't know of a better word to use. Well, and she's a survivor. She's yeah. the only one who survives. Yeah. Also, she's a sex-positive blind lady. Like, that's pretty cool. Like, she goes in, she's like, nah, man, we're going to have sex tonight. I will get in this yeah. car with you, strange man, and let's go pet a tiger, and and let's bone. This is great. I love her. Let's go pet a tiger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've pet, I pet your tiger, now you must pet my tiger. It's weird, though, now that we were talking about it, it I'm going to criticize the film now, because it doesn't follow, it doesn't track at all that, you know, that's the tooth fairy's mo like he completely breaks down like we spent the whole movie studying his mo and getting inside his head and what brings him down is this sort of random passion bad judgment moment where mm -hmm. he has where you know it, he didn't plan her death and now she's it, it, it doesn't fit with the tooth fairy mo at all no 
Well, I, I think that's important though, because he's, you know, shows him as fallible. Like he's certainly, when he's interrogating other victims, you know, especially the, the reporter, you know, he's saying, look upon me as a God and all this stuff. It's a breakdown in his sort of mental locomotive that he's got going on. In the book, he's, he, I think the intention of it was he was going to kill her and then kill himself, oh. right? So, I, yeah, so it's, it's been a bit. Because it's thrown his whole thing out of whack. His whole journey is to become more like a God, right? Yeah. By killing people. Well, also he talks about, um, or maybe just Will talks about him needing to be seen with desire. So for yeah. him to end up with this blind chick is, uh, is just completely off right. of, of what we've kind of established for him. Right. Yeah. That's a great point. And she, she sort of, she perceives him more astutely than anyone in his life. Like he's totally disarmed by her, which is, that's fantastic. You know, this is cool. I get to name drop now. So in all my weird Hollywood travels, Tom, Tom Noonan's become a friend of mine. So he's, Neat. and he's such a cool guy, but he's, he's definitely a little off, you know, I mean, <laughs> um, but I, I did ask him about that. And he, he, cause I'm like, I got to have some anecdote that I can share and some weird thing from set or something. And he, he thought about it and he said, well, there was this, they were shooting the sex scene um, that he and Joan Allen, and there was a, there was more that they had shot that they didn't use. Um, where they were sort of actively having sex. And he said, you know, it was really intense and he hadn't interacted with the cast a lot to that point. He had made the decision to like sort of sort of stay isolated on purpose. And so Joan Allen was one of the few people he really had any extended scenes with. Um, and they're having this sort of intense moment and the sex scene's happening. And he said, then out of nowhere, Michael Mann just shouted, and come! <laughs> So that was that about performance. <laughs> so yeah, so there's that, but but yeah, so but I I guess that was my segue. It's just no, one name drop that Tom's a friend of mine, and then two to sort of say I really really I think that the Tooth Fairy man is such an underrated sort of serial killer of, of that pantheon. Like what a mm -hmm. what a fantastic character, and I I mean I I didn't read the book, so I don't know what you know Tom was working off of, but. Like I, I, it, it seems like that's the sort of character that would have been ripe for a really great remake. You know, well, that at, would have gotten like the, the Hannibal Lecter treatment, but Tooth Fairy, I don't know, I, unless it happened and I missed it. It did get remade as Red Dragon years later. Yeah. But, uh, but, but I'm with you on the, look how they fleshed out Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs. You could have done a little bit more, you know, who doesn't remember? It punched the lotion in the brass, you know? <laughs> You could have done more with that with that guy to really flesh out his uh, his his sort of backstory. And I'm I have not read the book, but I've I've read about the book. And apparently, in the book, you find more about his backstory. And they cut a bunch of it out. Michael Mann did when he wrote the screenplay. Wow. Yeah, the book Red Dragon. You what's what's interesting, and we had kind of talked about this off off mic, but the remake is a lot closer to what is actually in the book and you do get that fleshed out of the tooth fairy and you know kind of why he is the way he is and he is almost more sympathetic i mean he's still awful and does awful things don't misconstrue what i'm saying but you uh and will talks about it like as a child you know as he was as a child yes i feel sorry for him but now he's you know a grown man and i think it would have been fantastic if we could have 
almost flip the script where we could have had the Red Dragon script and see Noonan actually really mm-hmm. get the full effect because he is with him. I mean, and that's a lot of this cast is an unknown. And I think that with that type of role, you kind of want that. So you don't have any preconceived notion of, oh, I know this actor. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, there's a safe area. Like I know with him, since you don't, you don't really know him. Um, it just, I don't know. There's, there's just an added level. Yeah. Well, Tom Noonan is fantastic in the role. I would have loved to see him get, get, even more screen time. Like he, he does a fantastic job with what he, he is given, but he is, he's, he's fantastic in a lot of stuff. You know, he, he was in uh, last action hero. He was great in that. Oh yeah. I love that was. movie. <laughs> he, he was in hell on wheels, played the reverend in hell on wheels. He's even in Horace and Pete with uh, Louis CK, like direct to the internet release. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's fantastic. Yeah. And, um, Oh God, monster. What, the, he was Frankenstein. He played the Frankenstein's monster in that like kids monster. Oh, movie. Monster Squad. That's monster right. Squad. That's right. He was. Oh my gosh, I completely forgot he was Frankenstein in that. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, he was fantastic in that. Side note: I think we need to do Monster Squad because I just remembered how much I like that movie. <laughs> well, David, next time you're talking to your buddy Tom, just tell him these three randos from Oklahoma really liked him. Okay. Done. Done. The character design on him was so good. Mm-hmm. Like the way that they, he's like, they kept him looking sympathetic while still giving him that, oh, I can totally see why you feel undesirable. Yeah. You know, one thing I loved, I just, because I love it when a movie treats you like you are able to think is, you know, he had that, that scar from the cleft palate and uh, Joan Allen's character commented, you don't say your fricatives and you don't say your sibilance without ever going into a five minute dissertation about how he was bullied because he had a cleft palate as a kid and i just appreciated that the movie let us go oh okay sure he's got this cleft palate and that has affected him well did the movie ever even actually openly say that she was blind or did i because i don't think it did and um and i like i i I also appreciate i hate it when movies are like hey we think you're an idiot so (laughs) here's this information we've clearly already given to you yeah, he does say pretty early on, can I touch your face so I can see if you're smiling or frowning? I mean, that's mm-hmm. a pretty okay. good indicator that she's blind. Well, and she also mentions her touch filing system. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah. But I, I agree with you that it wasn't like, it, it, the, the bad way to do that would be like, oh, hey, you, know, you don't have the lights on because you're blind. You know, like somebody would have made some stupid reference to say mm-hmm. it. And I, I agree. The fact that you had to infer it from her behavior, it was just, it's always smart. Mm-hmm. And there was, oh, that was one other thing I wanted to say. We were talking a little bit more about one of my favorite scenes, though, is the the way that we are shown Dollar Hyde's moment where he feels betrayed when when her coworker takes her to the door. Just just the way Man shot that, it was just so great to see something so innocuous get literally fantasized, or it's not even what the word is, nightmare nightmareized in Dollar Hyde's eyes. You know what I mean? Like I just thought that mm-hmm. was a stroke of genius the way that. You see it and you're like, oh God, oh God, he's he doesn't understand. Oh God, it's all gonna happen now. I just love that. And it was such a fast, simple, no dialogue moment. Well, there was there was a, a small bit of dialogue because at the very end they zoom in to them and actually you hear them oh, and Colin or whatever. What was it? No, it was eyelash. Eyelash. Yeah, yeah. Like, like, no. I actually kind of went the other way. I in the sex positive female of that era, you know. I, they had no commitment to each other. Why couldn't she be dating that guy too, you know? Mm-hmm. I was kind of taken aback when they did the close-up of the 
oh, it was just an eyelash thing. I was like, oh, nah, whatever. <laughs> um, this is probably just because we watched Behind the Mask last last time. But um, I feel like there were a lot of similarities between Leslie Vernon and this guy because they both have that like, I'm, I'm, I'm a nice guy. I'm very disarming. I'm sweet. I'm like, I'm a little awkward, but I'm also a little adorable. And then that moment of like, oh, but no, I'm actually fucking scary. Like, like here's the turn and you see like, I am not as, as harmless as I have appeared to be. Yeah. There's even the, you know, Francis. There is no Francis anymore. Whatever yeah. 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 <laughs> mm-hmm. Like when he grabs the dashboard, the timing and everything on it is very similar to when Leslie Vernon is shoving Taylor against the car. Yeah. And Francis is a non, you know, gender non-specific name. Leslie is a gender non-specific name. That's wow. Yeah. yeah. You guys are blowing my mind. I, uh, <laughs> I, I, did, I did. I was not thinking of Francis Dallaride or the tooth fairy when I wrote behind the mask. I promise you that, but that's a, well, you're, you're definitely pulling from other slasher movies. And while this isn't, like, a slasher movie in feel, it is the, like, the serial killers birth the slashers. Sure. And, uh, and, and so you, you, whenever you're, like, I think when you're exploring the humanity of a slasher, you have to sort of get into that serial killer mentality. You must become Will Graham. Wow, you're blowing my mind. Wow. <laughs> I got to reevaluate my life. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> Don't worry. Don't worry. We do this every two weeks, man, for like two years now. We, we, we overthink things. I think that would make Britain the Will Graham character since he was trying to catch Leslie Vernon sort of yeah. in a field in a way. Yeah, but you've got, you've kind of, that was sort you of the know, dream. Like you get to die in a shot, horror movie. So. Oh yeah, don't, don't get me wrong. When I found out that I was in a horror movie, I was very excited. When I found out I was dying in a horror movie, I was very, very excited. Yeah, Dude, that's that's the dream and, and as a hero it was it was a heroic death so well it was, what more the, could you ask the impetus behind it was heroic but the result was cat- cat- catastrophic because it's a horror movie you're in the wrong genre to be a hero heart was in the right place can i can i break down the like can i give you guys a behind the scenes thing because this story is too good yeah awesome. yes um, i know we're gonna get off we're getting way off track um so dude if you listen to any of our past podcasts a lot of them turn into i hated this movie let's talk about a different movie instead <laughs> so well let's talk about britain's death scene because it's a night he will never forget i'm quite sure of it oh we had these grandiose plans to have you know todd is supposed to get stuck in the mud in this cornfield and it's rich with blood and he can't walk and it's just you know he that's how he gets caught it was described to me as quick blood like quicksand but with blood so we had these crews like out kind of trying to dig up the cornfield but it was november i think december in portland and it was freezing it was frozen the ground the soil was frozen and i'm not a small man so the the (laughs) hole that they would have had to dig you know would have had to been fairly large and then on top of that, they had the foresight to say, all right, well, it's, it's, we're still going to try to fill it up with water and like make it a muddy mess for him to fall in. We're like, it's too cold. He's going to get sick and die. So somebody's like, what we need to do is put him in a wetsuit. So they made Britain put on a wetsuit <laughs> underneath his costume. A short sleeve wetsuit underneath my costume. So now here's Britain trying to run across rocky frozen soil in a wetsuit and it's and it's not there's no water to be found anywhere it's all frozen and i'll just i mean if you watch it now you can i think at some point you might kind of be able to see how 
Britain struggling to run. <laughs> Anybody's trying to run in a wetsuit, it's hard enough. And then with a, your costume over, it was anyway. So that's what was going that's, on there. That's awesome. I mean, that's terrible. You're a trooper. The worst part about it was the, you know, the it was supposed to be a cooler death, you know? I wanted to be <laughs> I wanted to be, you know, have my head dunked in the blood mud or whatever. <laughs> the but quick blood. We had to improvise and make it to where he snaps my neck instead. Uh, but that scene actually turned out really cool because I think ultimately what happened is you got it. You did get to see that last flash of of Leslie's humanity before he's like, all right, now I just killed my friend, and now then he's, yeah. from that point yeah. he's full, you know, the boy mode after that. So so it worked, Britain. You you were the cathartic kill. Yeah. It was one of my favorite moments. Thank you. Yeah. We enjoyed watching you die. Right on. <laughs> <laughs> yep, whenever whenever we did our failed zombie movie, I I we were filming a lot of scenes in the middle of winter that were near lakes with people covered in wet blood or wearing short sleeves and pretending like it was summer. And the whole time we were like, Why did we do this now? <laughs> Why? <laughs> and, and it was like, Well, because the night is longer, we need more of the nights. But uh, yeah, I felt we, we were like constantly standing there with blankets and then shooting the scene and then running up and being like, okay, okay, are you okay? Are you okay? You good to go? Okay, ready? And action. It was, it was hard, man. Building movies is hard. The suffering, suffering for our art. <laughs> yeah. I was gonna say, and also summertime in Oklahoma, regardless of night, is awful. Oh, dude, summertime in Oklahoma is awful. I'm in Texas and I feel the exact same thing. You know, in LA... It would be 102 in the day. And as soon as the sun goes down, you open up the windows and, you know, it's 63 degrees outside and it's lovely. In Texas, by 2 a.m., it may have cooled off to 97. Dude, it is the worst. I am like, the weather is the reason I'm going to leave this state. Everything is like, I just, I can't handle the weather here. It is terrible. Well, that and the outstanding warrants, but, you know. <laughs> uh, oh, sorry, sorry. Sorry, uh. Never mind. <laughs> we don't we don't talk about those. We've never seen her. We don't know her. Not my real name. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about the soundtrack again. I really, really like the soundtrack to this movie. Like for the first half of the movie, it sounds like it could be the soundtrack for Legend or any other 80s fantasy movie. And I was so into that. And then all of a sudden we cut to I don't know who that band was, but it sounded like in excess for that that sex scene. And uh, and I was like, I really like this song. Like, I'm about to, I meant to look up the soundtrack last night, but because of who I am as a person, I did not watch this movie until one o'clock in the morning. So I didn't have a chance to look it up. But uh, yeah, man, it was too loud. It was definitely mixed too loud, but I really, really enjoyed it. That song is called The Big Hush by Schreiback. And they did a few other songs on that soundtrack. But I agree with you. It's super stylized. I mean, like I said earlier, it felt like watching a two-hour episode of Miami Vice <laughs> music, you know. Before we started recording, Britton, you were talking about the original ending and Molly in the book. Yeah, and in the remake, Red Dragon. You know, so the plot point of Hannibal Lecter putting his address out in the Tattler classifieds for the Tooth Fairy to get has a far more significant impact on the Grams in Red Dragon than it does in Manhunter. In Manhunter, they just go move the family. You know, no big deal. We'll just take it somewhere else. And in Red Dragon, the uh, he actually fakes his own death with the body of the guy he thought was cheating with Joan Allen. And so in the remake, he fakes his own death with that guy's body when he lights the house on fire. 
the Joan Allen character still escapes, but Tom Noonan, everybody thinks he's dead. And then he goes over to Will Graham's house and attacks Will Graham. That's where, where Will Graham gets cut. And it ends up that Molly, his wife, shoots him and saves him. Oh, wow. I would really have liked to have seen that because I, I felt like Molly was just, she was just this perfect, like, cut out um you know she was just just pretty and sweet and she never got upset about anything i mean i may love my husband but when i find out that me and my kid are gonna die because of my husband doing a thing i'm not gonna be like oh it's okay everything's fine it's cool we love you they didn't give her a lot to do no uh she was just perfect and cute and pretty and perfect and she got to look pretty in florida i don't know i God, I, I guess I have an, an opposite reaction to that. The moment where, you know, where they relocate the family, like I was, I was so relieved that it wasn't the, how dare you do this to me and I'm taking my son. Like, I, I, I hate it when they do that, where it's like now, like, I get it. And as a screenwriter, I understand the devices you need to make the hero sacrifice everything. And now his wife and his kid are mad at him. And, you know, but I, I don't know. I was so relieved that she was... Like, no, we're, we're fine. This house is fine. We're going to be fine. Like, I, I don't know. I, I see what you're saying, it, mm -hmm. but I, I interpreted it that she was sort of like almost, this is just my total imagination. But in that moment, I felt like she was making the choice to be like, I could be mad and he did put us in danger, but I'm going to, I'm just going to sit on it because I believe in this guy. I, I, feel, I feel that there's a scene, uh, I, I can't remember which scene it is, but it's with her and Will. And she tells him something, and I'm I'm fully expecting her to have this stereotypical movie wife, you know, reaction. Where, but you can't listen that. And she goes, okay, well, you know, you got to do what you got to do. <laughs> like I was like, yeah, that's right. She did that again too. Yeah, at the beginning where she was like, well, it sounds like you've already made up your decision. Made up your yeah, mind. I I have that written down. I think you've already decided, and you're not really asking. And, and like, she could have delivered that line in an angry movie wife way, but she didn't. Like, it sounded like she understood. And I, th I thought it was nice to see a married couple that likes each other. Yeah, that have a heavy conversation and then make love afterwards. Yeah, well, and also it seemed like she knew who he was. Like, she knows who she married. Right. She knows what his job is. She stayed with him through his mental breakdown. And so whenever he's doing it, and she also... I think, I feel like the movie let us know that she feels like his work is important. It's not like he's over here, like, like I got to go to the stock market and be a dick face to a whole bunch of people now. He's like, I got to go save these people's lives. And she's like, nah, man, yeah, you got to go save these people's lives. What are you going to do? But Donna, I do agree with you that she, she was, it was, it's like another character that could have been explored more in a way. Yeah. Yeah. But the movie was already two hours long. I mean, no. it was long. But they also, you know, he wastes a bunch of time. It shows him dialing all, like, ten digits of a phone number. <laughs> yeah. There was some interesting pacing choices. Can I just, I want to break in real quick and just tell you about my viewing experience of this movie. And before I start this story, I need to say, I did not tell my father that I was watching a movie for a podcast, okay? I didn't say, hey, you need to leave me alone for two hours. Uh, so I want to let him off the hook for that. But... Um, he was having trouble with uh, Microsoft Office reinstalling and updating. 
and uh, and I kept getting Donna, can you come help me? Donna, can you come help me? And at 11 minutes left in the movie, which is by the way when Will is starting his charge towards the window, <laughs> was when Dad was like, "Hey, come here and see this," because Microsoft had finally finished installing, and he wanted me to see the end result. And that was when I was like, "You gotta leave me alone." Okay, you just you just you gotta leave me alone for like ten more minutes. Some of the crucial scenes did not maybe have the emotional impact on me they were supposed to. Mm. But again, that's not his fault. I should have said I'm watching a movie. <laughs> the pacing, I felt like it seemed like they were going for this really slow burn effect. And for the most part, I think that they were really nailing it. But then there were times where I'm like, do I need why why do we need to watch him dialing this phone number? Like, I get it. You, you can just call. You can just make the call. I don't have to see it. Well, and he calls, there's one scene where he calls his wife. He's asleep. He, she wakes up, answers, and he goes, oh, hey, I didn't realize you're asleep. I'll call you back later. Okay. Yeah. And then he makes another phone call, which is important to the scene. But, like, why was that in there? Why do you need, I mean, mm-hmm. I guess you're showing that he's loves Thinking his wife. Thinking of her? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I- I, I mean, I, Britain, I saw that again. I, mean, I don't know. I'm just crazy weird mind when I look at that. But I, I, I immediately took that to, like, that was a catalyst for him that he had a moment of connection of love with his wife and he hangs up the phone. And I think to me, that was him thinking about love and the adoration and all that stuff. And then he sort of went back in and started watching the, the videotape of the woman, the next victim. And I feel like that was like, you know, he, he has all these catalysts. Like Will's character was always that makes sense. Prompted by talking, he he would get prompted into deep thought by talking to 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 Jack, or he'd get prompted into deep deep thought by talking to Lecter. So it was it was always these moments where he would like sort of like drift away from the phone because he'd had an you know. So that's mm-hmm. how I interpreted that. Well, I could see he has moments where uh, you know he's fully invested in this investigation and he's in you know trying to get into the mind of this killer and for him to take a time out from that chaos and just try and talk to his wife i could see that as a as a calming influence something he needs to do you know he was frustrated before that yeah and he called her and that was okay and then he got his focus and started to perceive right yeah see and i'd always took that scene as like almost like he's grounding himself like he he wasn't ready to deep dive in into the tooth fairy as he knew he had to. And he was like, okay, let me call her. And just hearing her just kind of recentered him and kind of like, no, I'm not the tooth fairy. I'm Will Grant. This is who I am. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, that's how I, I didn't feel it was unnecessary, but I liked it. There was another part of the pacing thing I wanted to get everybody's opinion on was it's so Michael Mann, not the opening, not the cold open, but the opening where we meet Will for the first time and he and Jack are sitting on the beach and just that long, slow push in where they're not talking and the dialogue was so minimal. It, that, that was just so Michael Mann, right? With the ocean in the background. But I think like I love the pacing of like the slow burn of the scene with them talking. Like that was a great two character introduction. It wasn't like well, how are you doing since you got slashed, you know, 60, like it was all so alluded to. Um, it wasn't beating you over the head with it. And then they revisit that at the end. Like there was a point where you know, Jack kind of like comes up on, on behind him and he's like injured or something. Like they bookended it with those like beautiful Michael Mann ocean music playing, no dialogue stuff. I don't know. Did you guys, what was the reaction? There? I watched that scene three times. I rewound it three times. <laughs> 
My first impression, because again, I hadn't seen this movie before. My first impression was, are they stranded on a desert island? <laughs> are we going to have a flashback to how they ended up on this island? Oh, no. Okay. No, they're just sitting on driftwood. It's fine. <laughs> well, they, they did have frosted beer mugs. So either they brought those <laughs> to the deserted island with them or somebody else. It was, a, it was a recent stranding. <laughs> Priorities. Priorities. <laughs> Like Minnow on a three-hour tour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I liked those shots. I think it's just kind of that, I do agree it's very Michael Mann, but it's just kind of showing the normalcy. Like, And I, and I know it also goes back to this, with this film, doesn't tell you things. It, it just lets it unfold. And I, yeah, I liked them. I, and I do agree it is a, it's a nice bookend between the two pieces. <laughs> I love... I, I I really love the way that the story unfolds in this movie. I get annoyed. I, I said this earlier, but I just get annoyed when movies treat me like I'm an idiot. And so I like that this one didn't feel the need to give me information and then say, hey, 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 just in case you didn't get it. Mm-hmm. Um, it just, it gave me the information and let me extrapolate from there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's an adage in the screenwriting world that the greatest sin you can commit is to tell the audience something they already know. And this movie doesn't do that. I, I agree. I also like, I love, like this, I I think this movie is so beautiful. Just like all the shots are so pretty, Um, which is weird because that's not like, unless it's like a heavy stylized movie, like fantasy or something that's not, that doesn't tend to be something I think of movies from the eighties very much, but this one was, and then it's also super normal. Like all of the sex scenes are just a little bit awkward. None of the dialogue is like overly clever. And so it's got all this beautiful stuff and then really grounded in things that feel real. And I just think it's a nice, like, this is a weird thing to say about this movie, but it was kind of soothing to watch. Yeah, I can see that. I think, too, like, Britain, maybe if you had the same experience I did, there was something very soothing and comforting just about, in fact, I think you mentioned this off mic, um, it, it gets soothing to me because it took me back to that, you know, that 80s period of my life and, and how much I enjoyed that, that culture and that, that's, I mean, having lived through the 80s, I don't know. It was like there, there was a, there was a comfort in being brought back into that cocoon. I don't know. Oh yeah, and plus, I mean, I was fourteen when the movie came out, so like very insulated and safe, and no real world problems, and you know, it's just a, a, a simpler time in my life. You know, a simpler age to be harkens back. I would like to uh, bring up Stephen Lang, who plays the yes. I I enjoy Stephen Lang as an actor a lot. Like he's, I mean, he is amazing in Tombstone as I clan, just this cowardly bully who runs away when the fight starts, you know, just a craven little coward. And he's so fantastic in that. Is he also the guy in Avatar? Was he the general he's, or whatever? He's the colonel. Yeah. 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 But he's fantastic in that too. Like, you know, um, this was clearly sort of early in his career to my, to my thinking. It's a little, you know, he needed to, to be a seven and he was giving us a 12, you know? It's just, <laughs> I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. But did anybody notice in the scene where he's kidnapped and he's blindfolded that the blindfold is a maxi pad? I did see that. I did, I did notice, notice that. that. I did not. <laughs> yeah. I didn't either. Oh, no, there's a distinct rip yeah. that you hear and it's like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. Yep. I did notice that there was like a piece of tape. A piece of tape got stuck under like that. Yeah, they, they missed it. Yeah. <laughs> I know that was weird. I didn't know it was a maxi pad. That's hilarious. 
the counterpart yeah, yeah. to Stephen Lang's uh, role as as Lowndes in the movie Red Dragon was Philip Seymour Hoffman, another guy in that same same sort of range of actors that can be so transformative. Like if you look mm-hmm. at Ike Clanton from Tombstone and the Colonel from Avatar, you barely know that that's the same guy. You know, he's a chameleon. He just changes mm-hmm. with roles. And Seymour Hoffman did that too. You know, he was, he's so good. Yeah. And that character was so 80s too. I mean, that, that, it was such a great, so like, oh my God, the, the wardrobe, the hair, the, the, the whole thing. It was just the tabloid talk. I mean, it was so, you're right. It was like 80s. A little knitted tie. Oh, it's so over the top and great. I loved him. When he was, when he had been captured and the, the close up is on his top, the knot on his tie. Kind of looks like a little noose. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The cloth knit tie. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I had forgotten he was in this. And then when he shows up, I'm like, oh, yeah. Side note, that's probably the darkest I've ever seen his hair. That was yeah. another reason that I had forgotten <laughs> that he was in this. But he's also in Don't Breathe. He's yeah. a blind man in Don't Breathe. And that's another one you don't yeah. think that is him. You forget that is him. And I, yeah, just, yeah, he's a chameleon. I do agree. There's just something I really enjoyed watching this movie going, who is that? Who is that? I know that. That's Brian Cox? Who is That's Stephen Lang? Yeah, it was, uh, I don't know, I felt like there were several actors doing that. Joan Allen, you know, nobody knew who she was back then, or, you know, you guys mentioned Chris Elliott being as part of the FBI crew, and that's fun to see. Yeah. Yeah, the casting in this is wild. Like, I mean, just wild with just now who you know and just to see something like this where everybody gets their start. And I mean, Donnie, you brought up Brian Cox, so let's get into his uh, Hannibal Lecter. Like, I just, that I, first... want, I just want to interject, though, before I do that. Okay. Like, you guys, if you really want to be nerdy and geeky like me, go, um, go on IMDb and look at Bonnie Timmerman and the, 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 the canon of stuff that she has cast. And the character, and the, I mean, she she launched a lot of careers. She's a really, really un, unheralded casting director, says says the guy who works in that side of the business. But it's just, and it's, it's another part of the legacy of this film that, you know, Bonnie Timmerman was also just starting out. Now I'm, I'm curious on that. Uh, no, but Brian Cox, like, that's that opening scene with him and Graham, it is just... It, I mean, it's like lightning, like it just crackles, like it is, and it's so different. It's just, it's just a completely different energy and not, nothing against Hopkins by any means, but it's just, it's different, like, and it's a mm-hmm. good difference. Well, if you'd never seen Hopkins play Hannibal Lecter. Right. Uh, right. He was a great Hannibal Lecter. You know, it's just that Hopkins was born to play the role. I, I loved how casual he was when they have that scene where he's on the phone sitting with his feet up on the wall like he's a teenage girl talking to her crush. Like I, I like that that really stood out to me. I felt like that was a really good character building moment, just the way that they framed the shot, the way he was sitting. It was I, I feel like he took Hannibal Lecter in a completely different direction. Like Anthony Hopkins is this very refined, like I have expensive tastes type of character. And this one was just like, I'm, I'm sort of having fun. Like, this is fun for me. I'm smarter than you, but I don't, I only care in that it'll get me what I want. When he m- made the phone call to get uh, Graham's home number, there was just this undercurrent that was just so sinister. Yep. While he's being so pleasant, he's just so pleasant. But as the, as the viewer, you're just going, oh God, oh God, oh God. You know, it was, it was really well done. 
especially mm-hmm. if you know anything about Hannibal Lecter because you've seen other movies before. You know what a psychopath he is, you know? Mm-hmm. What sociopath, I guess he is. And I, I like the idea that, you know, Hopkins Lecter is much more cerebral. Like, yeah, he, he, he knows that he's smarter than you and he's not afraid to flaunt that, but it's, it's always a his his lector is way more condescending in his intellect um, than Brian Cox's version, which, like you were saying, with his feet up on the wall. I mean, that stuff that he's saying to Will on the phone about you know, he he knows he's not saying anything of any worth. Like he's just completely babbling to him at this point because I felt like that lector knew that Will's wheels were already turning. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. and he was sort of like yeah. he was sort of like nudging him along. Like I, like it's like he knew he wasn't really listening to him anymore. And yeah. that's very different than Hopkins Lecter because he was always very like, I'm, I'm going to give you this information and now I'm done, you know? I thought uh, it was so cool when he first meets or he first visits Lecter in Manhunter. That's the same atrocious aftershave you were wearing in the trial. And <laughs> how does he recognize Louis Star- Starling in Silence of the Lambs? It's a perfume. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was like a hand, hand cream or what was it? Oh my God, like some kind of... Yeah, it was yeah, her hand cream or something. Yeah, it's her hand cream because yep. he like pinpoints pretty much the drugstore she bought it at. Like, oh, you bought it here. You yep. bought it, you know, and this is and just completely dissects her whole. Yeah. Ex- just with the hand cream. And it's like for something yeah. so mundane. He yeah. Able to know so much about it. I was just looking up Bonnie Timmerman, like he said to do. And uh, she did Leap, which is like one of my kids favorite movies. <laughs> She's done a lot, yeah. She had 86. 86 movies have her listed as the casting director. Um, I do I do feel like, since, since I have to get on my soapbox every time, the way that they deal with talking about the possibility of him being gay, I find to be very interesting. Because I was full-on ready to get super offended about that, and it never quite hit that point for me. And I was like, wow, it's weird that this movie from 1986 manages to not piss me off as much as movies from like two years ago. Because they definitely like flirted with that a little bit. And it wasn't great. Like the, the, the way that they dealt with homosexuality in this movie was not ideal. But it also like, it's no sleepaway camp. <laughs> like, but, like they did better with it than I think a lot of especially horror movies do especially for something made in 1986 i mean i remember yeah. being a teenager in 1986 and you know people would say fag all the time don't be such a mm-hmm. fag and they're not even meaning to suggest that you're homosexual it's just that fag is a bad thing to be so don't be a fag, yeah right yeah so you know that's that stuff was rampant back then and it's it didn't really appear that much in the movie you know, I, go back and watch the first season of Friends. They say okay, some I, homophobic stuff on that, you know? They get better towards the end, but, you know, it's just a different time. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and it could never be made, you know, some of those first episodes of Friends would never get aired today, you know? Well, you know, Buffy the Vampire Slayer is one of my favorite shows. And going back and watching it, like, even though it's just like, you know, the 2000s, I'm like, oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no, what were you doing? For sure. But yeah, like I said, they, they sort of like, they get really close to that line of being like, this is a bad thing to be without, without quite stepping over it. And I just, I found that to be interesting and like, like something I should mention, because I felt like if we had a podcast where I didn't complain about something, it'd be weird. Well, I think that's also a credit to man, just being 
I guess a superior artist, if you will, on how to word things, how to how to move things along and how to say things without, you know, I got awful. I think <laughs> maybe also I would add to that that, you know, I, I think Wow, this is a stretch. But uh, knowing Tom, I think also Tom Noonan had something to do with that as well. I don't think, you know, he he's always been a very sort of progressive-minded guy and a, even, you know, a very, like, New York, bohemian sort of a vibe. So I think even for him, probably in the 80s, he would have sort of inherently not wanted to cross those lines, at least the way I know him. And I, I think you can see that in the way that he delivers the lines whenever he's killing the reporter. He's like, like, he's like, do you think I'm queer? And the way he asks it, he doesn't even sound like angry about it. Like, like, it feels like he's just like the way that he asks the question, it feels like a question. And then whenever he's like, well, let's seal our deal with a kiss. Like, he's like, well, fine, I'm, I'm gonna kiss this boy now. It's fine. Yeah, I don't know. Like I said, I feel like they could have gone to a really bad place, and I'm sure that other people could interpret where they went as a bad place. But I felt like it was it was much better than I was than I was fearing it would be when they brought up the idea of the killer being gay, of the tooth fairy being gay, or or the, more specifically of outing him in the newspaper so that it would create a reaction out of the killer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, also, they did. They, they they made sure that you weren't super sad about him dying. I like. I loved him. He was so great. <laughs> but also, when he was on fire, I was like, "No, that's fine." <laughs> did y'all notice his license plate was "Gotcha"? <laughs> oh man, nice. And also, they super made it his fault. Like he was the one that insisted on being in the picture. Like he was like, "No, I'm gonna like like I gotta be. It's real, right? You gotta have me here." Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I also really like like the, I I also like that he wasn't an idiot. Like he's playing up this like sort of dumb kind of fuckboy attitude. But then as soon as he's in the room with the guy, he's like, "Oh man, if he takes off his mask, I'm a dead man." And it's like, "No, you're right, man. Like <laughs> you better keep hoping he doesn't." No, I don't want to open him because then I'll see. You. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and I like that we're almost an hour into the movie, and you kind of see what. Uh, what the tooth fairy looks like you really don't but you're still you're seeing him but not really and it's not until uh the reba scene which isn't you know a little bit over an hour into the movie that you see him and i love that i love that you know that for a lack of a better term the not overshowing the monster like i like that and so and they did that with this film and i thought that was because you have so much dialogue they're looking for the tooth fairy they're talking about him he's this he's that and then you finally get to see him and you're like okay but more to your point uh in that scene with freddie lowndes when he uh they do show him and he's got the half stocking on his head go back and watch that scene and you'll see that at least half of it is filmed with the perspective of the back of dollar hyde's head so even though they have shown you his face most of what they're showing you is the back of his head this weird hair and the, the stocking cap tied back there. Mm-hmm. Well, and also like they don't even show you his face until until the reporter's seen it. Yeah. Oh, which right. I, I I like a lot. We see what um, the, and it was also I, I, if I recall correctly, I think it, I think Dollarhide was always shot from below, kind of up. Yeah, I think he was, except when he was sitting in the room with um, I'm so terrible with names with the the blind lady. Joan Allen, yeah. Yeah, thank you, Joan Allen. Whenever he's in the room with her, I think. They've got her framed, and so he's kind of down. But I think that's the only time. Yeah. And that's probably important now that I've said it out loud. When he's in the room with the woman he falls in love with. Well, I think they're, they're, on an, they're sort of on an equal level. Like, they're on the couch, yeah. 
but yeah, generally you're seeing him. It's sort of this intimidating lower POV, not all the time, but a lot of the time. I just remember thinking we're always looking up at the guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, he's supposed to be six foot seven. Yeah, and uh, we have a friend who's six foot seven. That's tall. I can stand on chairs and still be shorter than him. <laughs> and yeah, you definitely are uncomfortable looking up at him. I love the like narrative framing of this movie because they like I know that I think um, Britain mentioned that they don't have a lot of long monologues, but they do. It just doesn't feel like they do because there's so many shots of Will Graham just talking to himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah. the way that they do it, it feels fine. Like a lot of times in so many movies, you have characters talking to themselves because talking is the only way you have to convey an idea or a feeling or something. And you're like, oh, you're talking so that I can hear this with my ears <laughs> because this isn't filmable. And, but in this one, I don't know, like, like maybe it's just, maybe it's just the actor, maybe like, like a combination of everything, I'm sure. But well, it just, one, the device they use in the, when they first introduce it, he's talking into a tape recorder. Yeah. So yeah. For his own notes. And that sort of established that the guy's going to talk through each scene, you know, which they kind of dropped the tape recorder business later, but I think you're meant to sort of believe that that's his process and that he's going to review all that stuff in his downtime and all that. The only the only scene that showed there was I did get a little tired of the the incessant you know dialogue of didn't you you son of a bitch and ah, I'm gonna get you <laughs> like every time he talked to Dollar Eye he ended it with son of a bitch I'm like come on Michael man <laughs> I yeah yeah uh, but you know whenever um, whenever I first had my kid I read somewhere that talking to them helped them develop their brain connections or, or whatever. So I got into the habit of narrating things to her, like, we're going grocery shopping now. All right, we're looking for milk. Do you see any milk? No, you don't see any milk because you're a child and you can't see more than three feet in front of your face, but it's fine. Here's the milk. And like, that was a really difficult habit to get out of. So even now I'll be at the grocery store and like, all right, here's the milk. And people are just staring at me and I'm talking to nobody. And uh, end it with you, son of a bitch. Just add put you. You just end it with son of a bitch. Yeah. <laughs> son of a bitch. Oh, <laughs> don't son of a bitch. They'll really. You're gonna really want this in your cereal, aren't you, son of a bitch? <laughs> you will so get arrested. That's fantastic. Oh, you, you Hebrew national hot dogs! I'm gonna get you. I'm, I'm gonna, gonna get you, get son. You. Of, we're gonna cook you and put some mustard on you, son of a bitch. You're gonna be on the grill, aren't you, you son of a bitch? <laughs> But David, if you go back and watch those scenes where he's, you know, gets frustrated, didn't you? Didn't you, you son of a bitch? There's a couple of those scenes, right? And through the whole movie, we're trying to get in, he, or Will Graham is trying to get into the head of the serial killer, right? Yeah. And so that's why he goes to visit Hannibal Lecter. Well, the third time he has the, didn't you, didn't you, you son of a bitch, or where he's going to a crime scene to look at it and walk through it, the third time he changes it to I. Oh, I walk in, I see these people, you know, I do this. Mine, yeah, right. So we know that he's finally in the mine. Huh, okay. You maybe, all those, you, you, <laughs> maybe all those you son of a bitches are when he's getting too close to it, when he's like, I'm almost there. Nope, can't do it right now. Got to back off. Got to be angry instead. Nope. It's scaring me. So this is a little bit of a jump back, but an interesting kind of behind the scenes thing, which I didn't know about. But that is a real tiger and a real vet. That is sedated. That Joan Allen is touching him. Wait, touching is the not was sedated. What lips? <laughs> yeah. 
Did somebody explain to me where he took her that there's a tiger sedated? Did they sedate that tiger so she could pet it? Like, what's happening there? They mentioned something about the tiger getting a cap. Yeah. So I think I think it was just really amazing timing that just at that exact moment he had access to a sedated tiger. But yeah, I was watching as she as she sunk her hands into the fur, you could see the tiger breathing. Mm-hmm. And yeah, when she pulled his lip back, there was there's just no way to fake that and make that look real. Um, it was amazing. Well, in sorry to in the book. <laughs> they, That's my line. <laughs> I know. I wanted to say it. I felt really good. Um, there's a special kind of film that uh, Francis uses and he gets for the the uh, the zoo. And that's where that relationship is and how he was able to, you know, go see a tiger getting their tooth cap. Well, and he's friends with Joe Exotic, so it was no big deal. <laughs> fine, fine. My aunt used to work at the Tulsa Zoo and I got to hold baby snow leopards. Oh, wow. <gasps> That's my favorite animal. That's crazy. So they were, my favorite animal. They were so cute. Wow. Jealous. Actually, I think I think both of my aunts and my dad all worked at the zoo at one point. And like, if you go, there's like they've got their names on little fish plaques all over all around the penguins. And now you have your very own zoo. And now I have my very own zoo. <laughs> They're being very well behaved today. I'm very proud of them. They really are. Usually Renwick is like, it's time to furiously lick my balls right now. I don't have them, but it's time right now. And I'm like, buddy, we're recording. Just a little bit of professionalism here. Britain does that sometimes too. So <laughs> Yeah, you just have to come to a stop so that yeah, okay. But I'm I'm a human being, so I'm willing to stop. <laughs> we appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, I'm not wearing pants, so that's fine. I told him earlier, I put on pants because I was like, I might accidentally stand up, so I should just get that covered. It's fine. Uh, what else you got, Adrian? <laughs> um, actually, that's it. I can't, like A lot of this is just um, really specific scenes. Just um, don't ride with him. I love that she's so sex positive and brave, but I want to be like, oh, you can tell this is the 80s because she has not learned not to get into cars with strangers. Also, he asks like three times and... It, the way he asks is so creepy. It's just yeah. so it's, creepy. I mean, right. And then, and then off the top rope at the end, which can I take you somewhere on the way? It's a surprise. Like, you're like, Oh my God, don't no. <laughs> John Mulaney would say, you're not getting me to a secondary location. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And I'm just like, I'm just like, Oh no, cell phones don't exist yet. You're, you're fucked. He, he could take you anywhere. Nobody knows you're with him. You're already blindfolded. Yeah, you're already, you no, already no, have to just memorize the way. <laughs> Make him describe what he's seen as he's driving, just so you have you know points of reference that you can you can say or know what to feel for. But yeah, no, it is well, geese that sound like a cocktail party. I don't know. And and then the way that he doesn't actually like whenever he's watching the movie and she can hear the movie going, and she says, "What are you watching?" And he says, "Oh, just a little homework." And ends it at that. And I'm like. Buddy, she's blind. Have a conversation with her. She's not enjoying this. Nope. You know, I will say it was it was a stupid movie decision for her to get in that band. And the overall, in, you know, what happens to her sucks really bad as a result of her forming this friendship. But wouldn't you be really glad you got in the van when you when you got to the Tiger place? Wouldn't that be oh, awesome? Yeah. The tight, the tight, yeah. Once once we get to the Tiger, I'm like okay, probably the rest of this date is worth it. Right. Um, 
I mean, I think that that's what got him laid. Let's be honest. As soon as yeah. she she's like, "Oh, I'm definitely fucking this guy." Like that to me, that's definitely what happened there. Yeah, yeah, it, it would have worked for me. I'm just yeah. Saying. I'm not gonna lie. Yeah, I mean, Francis, that's a game material for Francis. Yeah. Like, I'm gonna let you pet a tiger, a like ball. a real tiger. What the hell? Who knew, who knew that tiger petting was such a panty dropper activity? <laughs> Joe Exotic. I, I or the or. Exotic. the or Chinese men, I think. That sounds like a very sort of Chinese aphrodisiac sort of a <laughs> cultural thing. Bangal yeah. region. Oh, gosh. Um, I love the crime scene. Whenever he goes back to the crime scene and there's all of that fucking blood everywhere. Holy shit, that was... Again, in, in the long history of fucked up things Adrian finds really pretty, that was such a beautiful crime scene. <laughs> the rumpled sheets and all the blood on the wall. I love that shot. Yeah. And then he goes to the one in Atlanta where Switek from Miami Vice is showing him around and there's nothing to see. Yeah. It's you know, he even talks about they had a real estate agent in there trying to sell it and somebody started talking about the bodies and they ran out or whatever. Right. Yeah. What's, what's he doing back there? Is he just back there to look at the yard? I think so. <laughs> okay. And then I, I, I think there is a he you just triggered a question. Uh, there was he says something, Will says something about have you shown this to any single men or something like that? Right. Mm -hmm. That made me kind of go off on a, a tangent about this, but it, this movie is so procedurally like on point. Like it, it's, it's something we hadn't seen before. And this is 1986. This is before Silence of the Lambs, before Manhunter, it's before CSI, it's before all that stuff. But, you know, it was like, um, what's his name? Um, the guy who wrote Manhunter, the book, Douglas. Oh, you're talking about Mindhunter. Uh, yeah, that's John Douglas. John Douglas, who wrote, like, he was the guy who started the behavioral sciences unit at the FBI. Like, he, that man himself has spawned this whole generation of, I mean, he launched the investigative, you know, accurate sort of forensic, he, he literally started it. And I just, I think Manhunter, the film, is very underrated for how technically astute they were in all of the, and Dennis Farina's character, like Jack Crawford, like, He's not wasting any time in his dialogue and they're not over explaining stuff. Like it was like straight shop talk through most of that movie, which is incredibly, I, it struck me as like, wow, they were doing that in 1986, man. Nobody was doing that then. Yeah. It yeah. really was a spiritual precursor to CSI. I mean, you got the same guy doing the same stuff. Yep. Now it's a TV show. Well, and you know, and, and they are doing all this shop talk, but they're also, um, and maybe this is just because I watched like, I don't know, probably every fucking episode of Law and Order that has ever happened, but it doesn't like, I'm not, I don't feel lost during it. They're not like going off on these tangents of jargon that are way over my head or anything. And so it's, it's a lot of shop talk, but they managed to bring it down to a level that's understandable. It was real though. It was, re it was real mm -hmm. and it was fast. And, and yet we were able to keep up. You're right. We've all been conditioned for 20, you know, 20 or 30 years of procedural I mean, which is crazy because now we all in our real life think that every crime should be able to be solved by the FBI magically putting some machine on it, which is not true, right? But mm -hmm. I don't know. I just, that it's like the way I view Blade Runner for being the precursor to every dystopian future version of Los Angeles movie that's ever happened ever since then or video game. Like mm -hmm. there's a component of, of Manhunter, which was really, it's, it's the first time we saw it. We all take it for granted now, but 1986. It was, you know, I mean, I yeah. think that's partially why it wasn't so commercially successful is that it, it wasn't, I don't think that the viewing audience had the taste for that type of sort of behind the curtain procedural stuff yet. I think we all got the taste for that later. 
And it's a slow burn. I mean, you know, in 86, that was more of a hard sell. It's a slow, and it's long. Like I can imagine people going to a theater and watching this movie and being like, what the fuck am I doing here? What time is it? (laughs) This, this feels like the kind of movie that you go in and it's daytime and you leave and it's night and it feels like 70 years have passed. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Do we have anything else before we jump into our rule poll and quote? I, I, I think I can be done. Mostly, like, I just, this movie is so weird and pretty and strangely comforting. All right, Britton, you have our quote. <laughs> I do. And David has already said the quote uh, during the course of our thing. But the, the quote we went with was, didn't you? Didn't you, you son of a bitch? <laughs> because it says it more than one time. And it's just so. I don't know. It's it's <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> that was, I was a good trying, delivery. I was trying so hard not to giggle when David started saying it because I was like, oh. <laughs> that's I didn't know. I that's a, great. That's fantastic. Yeah, he, he says it with such heat and vigor. And passion. And passion. That's the stage actor in William Peterson. He was emoting so the back of the theater could hear. <laughs> He was playing to the cheap seats. That's what he was. (laughs) And God bless him for it. All right. And Britton, you have a rule as well. Yeah, I think the rule we ended up with was just shoot the guy through the window instead of jump through the window and then try and shoot the guy. Instead of running from like a football field away. (laughs) Yard dash to then jump, jump through the plate glass window that should have cut you more than Dollar Hyde cut you, but left you intact. And then Dollar Hyde won't catch you in midair, slash you twice with a piece of glass, and then throw you crumpled to the ground. Yeah, yeah. Into a refrigerator. I mean, it, it all worked out. He kills him in the end, but five cops had to die first. Right? Yeah, and all this could have been solved with just, like, don't, don't announce your charge. Yeah. Just step out, shoot the guy. We're done. We all go home. Exactly. Yep. I mean, I guess at that point, he was too much in the mind of him and just needed to touch him. I mean, what I would have done is run the 85 yards and then shot him from five yards away. Yeah, yeah. Good plan. Run up to the glass and stop. But he had a clear shot. (laughs) I gotta gotta blame Michael Mann for that one. That whole, the whole ending, really, that was sort of the spot for me that I think he needed that. It it was very much like a slow motion gunshot boom. boom. Like that was very Miami Vice. I don't know. That was the weak spot for me. Agree. Yeah. All right. And I have our poll, uh, which is, which is the best Hannibal Lecter? Was that our poll? Yeah, that was our poll. Which is, uh, which is the the best one? Um, Who wants to go first? I'll go first because I think I'm 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 going to go ahead and play devil's advocate here. Um, I don't know that I fully believe this, but I'm gonna um. I'm going to plant my flag here for now. Uh, I'm going to go with this guy. You're going to go with Cox. All right. Yeah. Uh, I, like, I just, there was a playfulness to him that I really enjoyed. And, um, you know, I think one of the problems I've always had with Anthony Hopkins is that occasionally like, he gets so condescending that I kind of start tuning him out. And, uh, and I didn't, not, not condescending, but he gets so just like haughty and aloof that I stopped paying attention to him. And and this guy did not like that playfulness kept me more more tuned into him. All right, Britton, what about you? There's an old saying, a very old saying: when the student is ready, the master will appear. Anthony Hopkins is the clear 
<laughs> Even though I, I just did an impression of him from from Zorro, uh, it's clear. I don't know any any quotes off the top of my head from Silence of the Lambs, but he's a clear, clear Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> Even though I loved I love Brian Cox's portrayal, I think the more you get to know about Hannibal Lecter, the more you think uh, uh, Anthony Hopkins. In my mind, I think the performance by Brian Cox was fantastic, though. I loved it. All right, David? This was a lot closer than I thought it would be. Um, but, I mean, it's one of the most iconic villain performances in film history. As great as Brian Cox was, and, ha and had Silence of the Lambs not existed, it would have been certainly great. But there was nothing about Brian Cox's performance that rises to the level of like iconic performance the way that Hopkins did it. So um, as much as I loved revisiting Brian Cox's version, and I, I think I like Brian Cox's version of Lecter better, Anthony Hopkins, you can't touch that. Dun, dun, dun. Donna? I think I agree with, uh, with, with David. Brian Cox did an amazing job. And as Adrian said, there was a playfulness to his Hannibal that was just kind of really delightful. I mean, you really kind of liked this Hannibal, but I think Anthony Hopkins just has the advantage of Silence of the Lambs being such a huge movie that he really kind of claimed that role. And so I think when I say Brian Cox did a good job, I'm still comparing it to Anthony Hopkins as opposed to taking it on its own merit. Not even a shout out to Mads in this, huh? I uh, haven't watched any of that, so no. I will say that Mads Mikkelsen is a pretty good choice. Having not seen Hannibal, seems like a pretty good casting choice. He's he's a pretty good guy. Yeah, no, I've I watched a little bit of Hannibal, and and Mads was you know Mads was good. Uh, Hopkins has my vote, my heart. Like there, that's my Hannibal Lecter. Like there is a line where they're talking about in this film you know, Hannibal was attacking co-eds. And I mean, I'm like, I had a clutch my pearls moment. Like, that's not my Hannibal. He does, no, he does not attack college Hashtag not my Hannibal. Hashtag not my Hannibal. He does not, that is not what he does. So yeah, Hopkins all the way. So yeah, when you said that, Britain, that's why I was like, heart, anything else, everybody? I have a little something I'd like to okay. uh, If If I was a fan of your podcast and I had listened last week, you guys left some some questions up in the air that, that you didn't know the answer to. And I, I would, as, as a fan of the podcast, if I was a regular listener, I would be very upset if you didn't get some of those answers when you had these two guys on the on the podcast next week, right? Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> they, they want to know stuff like, uh, did we use stunt boobs for Chrissy's character? Yes, those yes. were stunt Yes, we did. Uh, they what? were they were very good. Great. <laughs> that was a that was a Portland stripper. I understand. <laughs> and Scott made us all leave the uh, the set when they they filmed that. It was very disappointing. Right. <laughs> because we didn't want the strip. Heaven forbid the stripper be embarrassed by other people seeing her boobs. <laughs> and we all had singles. Anyway, it just didn't materialize. <laughs> you know, one time I met a stripper outside of the strip club, and it was such a weird moment because I'd met her there. And like spent the whole night talking to her about her cat and I was very drunk and it was wonderful. And then I was talking about her to somebody and they're like, oh, that, yeah, Duchess, she lives right, right next door. And I was like, what? And they're like, yeah, yeah, let's introduce you. I'm like, no, no, I don't know. No, this is bad. And they like drug me over to her apartment and knocked on her door and I met her and like, 
I was so awkward. Like the first thing I said was, wow, they look good and your boobs look good and clothes too. And she laughed and I was like, I just have to leave. I need to be literally anywhere, but right here, right now. This is the worst interaction. She turned out to be really great. She's super nice. What other questions went unanswered, Britain? Uh, was Zelda Rubenstein nice? Yeah, she was a sweetheart. Oh, I'm so oh, good. good. So, so good to hear her to be nice. I, uh, man, so my one of my favorite Hollywood stories. So, oh, if I could find it. Um, we're shooting the, the scenes in the library, the Portland Library, and it was overnight. It was like the last night of shooting, wasn't it, Britton? Like, I think we were, like, we were almost done, but uh, Zelda it was like two or three in the morning, and Scott was like, you know, just David, keep Zelda awake. Like, just keep her talking. <laughs> so I'm sitting there talking to Zelda, and I had been warned ahead of time that Zelda was a real ladies' man. That's a true story. Like, she had this you know, young, uh, strapping assistant who, like, you know, walk, came, went everywhere with her. And my boss at the talent agency I worked for at the time said, you know, Zelda, she's, she's absolutely going to flirt with you. And I'm like, oh, that's crazy. And he's like, you just watch. And uh, I'm sitting there talking to her, like, two in the morning in the Portland Library, just trying to think of anything to keep her talking, to keep her awake. And we're talking about cooking. And like, I'm saying, like, I'm a pretty good cook. And I made, like, the spaghetti recipe or something. And she's, like, digging in her purse and, like, not really paying attention to me. And I'm like, oh, God, I'm losing her. And she's like, and out of, like, out of nowhere, she's like, well, you know, um, I'm a very good cook, too. You should come over sometime and I'll make you dinner. And she hands me, a, if I had it, I would pull it out right now, a, a three by five index card and it had her number on it. So it said Zelda and then, you know, three, one, blah, 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 blah. So she like literally gave me her digits on a three by five index card and invited me over to her house. Um, and so my boss is right, man. She was not shy about flirting. But okay. Oh. I have one really important I have question. One question. Go ahead. You go, Donna. I know the, the answer is no, I didn't. You didn't. Oh, you didn't go have dinner with Zelda. My question was, how was dinner? <laughs> you know, everybody, everybody always asks. I like. Well, did you go? And I, great, great Hollywood regret. I never did. Never did. God rest. You could have had spaghetti with her. I could have had sex with her, basically. <laughs> yeah, I said spaghetti, but sure, that's fine too. <laughs> could have petted a tiger. It would have been great. <laughs> Uh, what, what else did you guys have questions? Did y'all did y'all have a question about uh, Eugene's hat? Was that one of your questions? Yes. So that what is, did his hat. That what is, does his hat say? That's a barbecue place in Lockhart, Texas. The the uh, director Scott it, it used to spend childhoods in Lockhart. His dad grew up there, or partially grew up there, and uh, they're good friends with the people that run Kreitz. So I think I was on. I was on some kind of brief leave. I had to come back to Austin for something. And I went out there and got a bunch of sausage, which is what we're, we're cooking, Kreitz sausage on the grill, and got a hat for Eugene to wear in the movie. That's awesome. Say the name of that place again. You want to shout them out? It's Kreitz Barbecue in Lockhart. In, in Texas Barbecue, they're one of the legendary families. There's three big Lockhart barbecue places, Schmitty's, Kreitz, and Black's. And Schmitty's and Kreitz used to be one family. And then there was like a divorce or something. I don't know the, the whole history, but they broke into two. One family got the building and one family got the pit. And, <laughs> and then and, uh, Kreitz was born. But they've all been around since, I want to say, like the early 1900s. Making wow. Bar- nice. And it's, That's awesome. it's, it's some of the, like, if you read Texas Monthly Magazine, every year they come out with the 50 best, best barbecue spots. And 
the ones in Lockhart are always on it. And it's just a, it's a barbecue Mecca for Texas. So it's a little Easter egg that not a lot of people probably knew unless they've been to Lockhart, Texas, but it was pretty fun for the film. That's so, awesome. What and David, the- you were laughing while he was saying that. Um, just because I, we went, when we went back to Austin, uh, in 2016 or 17, um, it was like the 10 year reunion. We, uh, the group of us, I, Scott took us out to, didn't we go to crisis? Yeah. And it was just so surreal. Like, you know, 10 or 15 years removed now we're you know, part of the cast is back together and we're together again, eating this food. And it, I, I wasn't actually laughing. My mouth was watering because it was so, <laughs> so good. I was thinking, God, I would kill for some of that stuff right now. Oh, it was so good. So, yeah, huge shout out to Kreutz. I think during the podcast, you guys were divided on whether it was taking place in a world where Freddie and Jason and Mike Myers were real people. Was that one of the... I think we all agreed that it was. Okay. I was just going to bring up uh, in David's first draft of the script, there's a really cool poker scene where Leatherface and Freddie and Mike Myers are all playing poker together. Is there oh, really cool? that's we, awesome. We went back and forth on that because the way the universe is constructed, you know, we, we couldn't have them sitting there in costume. Like, it's not a parody. So it would have been like, you know, Jay and Mike and Fred and, you know, and, and all sitting in street clothes, right? And You would have the scene as gym bag with a hockey mask in it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so, but then obviously there's way too many, you know, we were too scared to copyright infringement, so. Um, but that scene, that poker scene actually ends up in the in the, the the graphic novel adaptation of the sequel that Nathan Thomas Milner did, which is beautiful. Okay, wait, what? What? <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, so the sequel before The Mask, The Return of Leslie Vernon, um, was written in 2010, 2009, we did it. Um, and just never got it funded. So what ended up happening was that um, there's a fan, he is a fan of the film named Nathan Thomas Milner, who is in his own right in his professional life, an incredible artist. Um, And so Nathan Thomas Milner was commissioned to interpret, to adapt the script into a six, six episode or six issue graphic novel which I think, I don't know where you go to get it. It's on the um, vernonfamilyfarmhouse.com or something like that. Um, but so the script exists, the sequel exists, and the, there is a scene in the sequel in the graphic novel of a poker game where there are some friendly faces that show up. And you said it's called Before the Mask? The full title is Before the Mask, The Return of Leslie Vernon, which is obviously a sort of a meta breakdown of a sequel, prequel, um but yeah so that's the canon exists it's just you know it's in a graphic novel format and nathan thomas milner if you don't know his art he's he's exceptional well i very much i very much appreciate that that's awesome yeah that is very cool do you guys remember any other loose threads that you had so jamie was eugene's final girl right correct that's what that was all about yeah okay and it is implied that eugene was um billy Billy from Black Christmas. Okay, because that was going to be my question was, is that, you know, canon? It wasn't, it wasn't originally, I didn't conceive of it that way when writing the script, but in the subsequent years, Scott and I kind of put it together. We're like, oh my God, it's totally Billy. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. I just want to say like, you guys did such a good job on that movie. That movie was so good. Um, I have I have come to the realization pretty recently that meta horror is possibly my favorite genre of horror now, and it's just 
a fucking delight. Well, it was so much fun to film. Um, and I don't think I've ever had a project where I stayed in touch with so many of the people that were involved yeah. as, as much as this one. Uh, but man, it was, a, it was like a, you know, just an extended vacation in Portland where you got to do what you love. You know, I was, I was a bar manager and a bartender when I made that movie. And so from going from four shifts uh, a week, you know, and, and doing daily stuff, you know, getting orders and stuff on Wednesdays, I don't got to do any of that. I get to go and act for six weeks in Portland, Oregon. It was a really amazing, amazing experience. I feel like you can always tell when people are enjoying making the movie versus when they're just doing a job. And it just like every moment of the, like all the details, everything in this movie just looked like everyone was super into it. Everybody was on point. Everybody was paying attention. Like, I don't, it's just. Oh, I remember one, you guys wondered if we improvised it. Or oh, improvised. yeah. And it was certainly not an improvised movie in any respect. Uh, it was a great script and we stuck to what was on the page for the most part. Doug and I got to, or Ben Pace, the guy who played Doug, got to improvise a lot because we weren't on camera a lot. The first, you know, three quarters of the movie, we were behind the camera. And so, you know, like the stuff in the, in the library, look at him, he's like a little monkey. Little things like that are improvised, you know. There were, there were a lot of scenes where we'd finish the scene and since uh, Ben and I weren't on camera, they just huddle us over next to the boom mic and have us do three or four versions of whatever the reaction was, you know. Uh, so we got to improvise some of that stuff. There's some fun improvisation that got left out of the, out of, you know, there's some sad things that got left out of the movie, like the, the walk-run scene that didn't make it into the final. That's, you know, how does the killer keep up with the victim, even though she's hauling ass through the woods? It's a fun little, you know. The super stomp, yeah. Yeah, I but uh, most of the improvisation was done, you know, after we had gotten the, what was written on the page or, or you know, something like that, yeah. The, the, thing, were, that, the thing that I would add to that is that, you know, when you, when you write a script, you, it's sort of, I always say it's like sending a kid off to college, right? You do the best you can uh, up to about 18 years old, and then you sort of instill everything you can, and then you sort of push them out into the world and say, oh, you know, oh, God, please, you know, don't fuck it up. <laughs> but there's a limit to you know you I, I i can't i didn't write leslie vernon the way that nathan played him i didn't write doug and todd the way Britton and ben played them you know you you put it down but angela created taylor um you know the, all those things happen and it was such a it was such a pleasure to watch them not it's not improvise it's it's fully develop it's to bring life to mm -hmm. a character that only exists on a page and everybody did such an amazing job of it that what a blessing as a as a writer and i mean that from my heart and and britain's right this is a group of people that i've stayed friends with and stayed in touch with that have become even better friends to me in the years since we've you know since the movie was out and it's just i don't know that i'll ever get that lucky again i mean and and the fact that you're right, the, the everything that came together, just good people doing good work, you know, with with a good mm -hmm. script and good actors, it was, uh, and, it was. And you couple that with the fact that you know we had a really low budget, so we faced some adversity, and it never seemed like adversity. It was just, oh, we can't do that. Well, you know, it's the same thing with the the we can't dig a hole in this frozen tundra. <laughs> like we made it work, you know, and it didn't seem like oh man this sucks we can't do what we were planning to do so we'll just do this half-assed version we've made something work and we were all excited about you know how to make it work and how to you know we we're all just fully in 
Oh my God, we, when we wrote that script I wrote, the, like one of the big huge chase scenes was up a silo, like up to the top of a grain silo. And we get to Portland and Scott's like, uh, one thing, no silo. <laughs> and it was like, <laughs> like, what? So we had to like, where it got improvised, like we have to chase him through grain bins on the ground. Like we have a loft and like Britain's right. It was just like, all right, no silo, that sucks. What do we got? <laughs> Let's do this. It was, I agree. That's it's fantastic. Just- you guys just did such a good, like I said before already, it's just such a good movie. Everything is so on point in it. Can I ask you, um, David, something that you've probably been asked before? Is it hard when you write characters? And this doesn't have anything to do with anything. I'm so sorry to everybody. Um, is it hard when you write these characters to watch people play them differently? Or did you kind of immediately fall in love with what they did? I, having not had the luxury of, of, of seeing a lot of my characters, you know, brought this to fruition. Un- unfortunately, you know, you... you you write stuff and mostly it goes into a void. I've sat through a bunch of table reads and sat through a bunch of, you know, sizzle reel footage and things like that. Um, the answer would typically be, yeah, it's really hard to watch somebody go off page and, and interpret a character differently because you put a year of your life or two years of your life into, into you know, birthing the thing. But it goes back to what I just said a minute ago. There's only so much you can do. You create the character the best you can and then inherently the process is an actor has to act it, an act, a director has to direct it, and it's not your job anymore. Um, I just, as we've said a bunch of times here already, I got incredibly lucky that, um, you know, watching Nathan do what he did, um, you know, he made that role. He made that role much more dynamic than anything I ever dreamed of writing on the page. Um, I will say that the probably one of the most profound moments I've ever had as a writer that really hit me deeply was... Um, watching angela her her sort of moment in the in the loft where she realizes you know spoiler alert she she realizes it's all been about her um that was such an important scene to me and i was such a melodramatic writer and like owning it and like oh my god I, this is you know and i tremor trying to talk to angela and stupidly i'm so embarrassed when i think about it now like trying to sort of secretly pull her aside to be like you know this is so important to me and but where are you go where are you going with this and she was very, very humble and, you know, humored me and... Um, but she's so great in that scene, isn't she? Yeah, that's, I guess that's where I'm going with it. Is I, was so, I was so fucking worried about it. Like, it was my baby and it was, this is like, I love Taylor, the character. And, and the, the profound moment I had was just watching her do that. Like, I was literally, yeah, I was really, really tired and possibly slightly drunk. But it was like, I cried. Like, I cried on set because I was like, oh my God, I, she did it. She, Angela did it. Like, that was never my job. Um, so I don't know if that answers the question, but um, if if it if it's done well and you trust your actors, that's the job. That's the job is to let let the characters become theirs. You know, something I really enjoyed it. It's a, it's a minor little thing, but I just enjoyed it so much. Was I felt like you could tell if you were looking through Doug's camera or Todd's camera. That was a conscious decision. They did they did Doug stuff a lot more arty. You'd see more Dutch camera frames and stuff like that. Uh huh. And obviously, Todd was a little more, you know, creep shot, lascivious. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I just like I say, it may have been a minor thing, but I really liked it. I thought it was a delightful touch. And just to just to to put Britain on the spot here, one of the things that I really liked about the movie is how like skeezy Todd was, and then the turnaround where you're like, no, actually, I, I kind of like Todd. Like, <laughs> turns out he's a pretty cool guy. 
Todd was the best. That's his last name, by the way, Best. Todd Best. <laughs> and, and, and Britain has my favorite improvised line in the entire, well, second favorite. Um, there's a moment, like, right when all the shit's going down in the cabin, we barely hear him off camera say, 98% of all whores know that they're whores. <laughs> it's so Todd. It's just so freaking Todd. I don't know where you pulled that from, Britain, but that I love. Every time I hear that, I just I'm like, oh my god, that's genius. Stu, your favorite improvised line is "Paradise Lost." Found it, of course. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, was, was that an improvised line? Oh yeah, yeah. That we talked about that line for a while. Yeah, we, did, we nobody knows. We 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 did. We were a little fast and loose uh, after shooting hours were over. Um, and it was some kind of part of your conversation we were having, and neither Nathan nor Scott nor I can remember. We all vaguely remember having a conversation in a hotel room about it. <laughs> but then the next day, it Nathan did it, and you know, it was it largely Nathan saved it from the abyss. But none of us know the inception. Mm. <laughs> well, this was awesome. Yeah, this thank was you guys awesome, so much, you guys. Yeah, we appreciate it, guys. Thank you so much for taking the time one to talk about Manhunter, and then also just talking behind the mask with us because you know we are we're all we were trying to be cool but you gave us the opening so historically i am very not chill i have zero chill so this has gone much better than i expected for me yeah you did cool pretty pretty well i do want to offer though that i mean i i i am obliged to say this and i and i and i mean it i want to is that let's be honest behind the mask was not a commercial success It, it it disappeared shortly after it was released and it's because of it's because of platforms like this, and it's because of you know fans like you guys and little tiny news outlets and journalists and bloggers and and webcasts. I mean, Leslie Vernon would not be anywhere at all the the level of of um, icon that he's become without zero help from you know studios or major hollywood systems it's all been fans it's all been fan driven so thank you guys for for doing that so weirdly emotional about this but like (laughs) you guys gave us such a good movie like it's just like it it feels it feels so loving like it's like a love letter to horror movies i i can't say it better than adrian because as a horror fan seeing a film like this we see you know that we see the love the care for the genre which you know sometimes it's kind of the redheaded stepchild of the film industry but to see something like this that gets it and then with the easter eggs that you guys did and i yeah adrian said it perfectly it is a love letter i grew up watching horror movies one of my earliest member memories that i have is watching christine with my mom and so yeah i just i've had horror movies my entire life and like this like Watching, watching behind the mask, I was like, "Oh my gosh, these these are these people get me." That this is like I want to be friends with everybody on this. I want to have dinner. I want to play D and D. These guys, this is this is this movie was made for me. Well, I think I told you guys off camera that I pre making this. I I hadn't had a lot of deep dive horror film experience. I'd seen all the big ones and whatnot. But when I got on this this uh, film set and we we're talking with Scott and David. Just the vast amounts of knowledge. It, I think Scott wrote like some sort of thesis on horror movies, some sort of breakdown on horror movies in college. Yeah. David clearly has extensive knowledge. And, you know, I'm a guy who's always known a lot about movies and actors and can deep dive and all that stuff. But being on set with these guys talking about it, you, you could tell that they 
had a love for the genre that, you know, they couldn't help but make something that would be a fan delight, you know, with all the Easter eggs and nods and, and winks and, and whatnot. You know, you guys caught a lot of them, like the girls jumping rope and the Red Rabbit Inn and all that stuff. I mean, there's countless stuff that, that, that I can't, that I didn't know about when we were making it that was in there. And it's just the level of detail was was remarkable, I thought. Well, you know, it goes in on, on with the with the not treating your audience like idiots. Like you didn't, you you never felt the need to be like, look, look, the red, do you get it? Do you get the joke? Yeah. Do you get it? Um, it was just, it was there for us and it, it was nice. Good times. Yeah. Full circle, man. Full circle. The love, the love you guys bring back is the reason there's any, the reason we're talking about this, the reason that it mattered at all that you had Britain and I on is because of the fans that have kept it alive. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're going to um, give you an opportunity to, you know, if there's anything you want to promote, if you want to put it, give out your Twitter handle, your uh, Instagram name. Any so projects just, or anything yeah, like that. Anything. Any barbecue places. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I hope David has something to plug because I don't. I'm pretty much, uh, I live in Austin now. I'm a professional gambler and man of leisure now. And uh, uh, I don't have anything to promote, but I can tell you all about Texas barbecue. If you, <laughs> if you come to town, everybody's going to tell you to go to uh, Franklin's, but there's always a huge line. So I would hit uh, like Micklewaith's or Curlin or uh, maybe do like uh, La Barbecue or Valentina's. Oh, good stuff. Holy shit, I'm hungry now. Yeah. <laughs> like, I almost drooled. <laughs> okay, so, so uh, me and Andrew Lewis, the producer, one of the executive producers of the movie, have a bet every year. He went to the University of Oklahoma, and I went to the University of Texas. So every year we bet on that Texas OU football game. <laughs> and we've been doing this for years. And every year there's some sort of penalty that the loser has to buy or perform or do, and it can be anything like, there was a year where my entire the, the entire year until the start of the next game was my Facebook profile was me in crimson and cream with like my face painted with OU. Oh. He, he, he lost another year and he had to make his him and UT. Uh, there was a year where we met in Vegas and he had to place a bet on the Longhorns to win that year because he lost last year. <laughs> Uh, but one year, I'm sitting on his couch. It's a year that Texas should have lost. It was towards the end of Mac Brown's tenure, and OU was just doing gangbusters. And so I'm on his couch in Colorado watching this game with his family, and I get to watch my team beat his team. And, oh. and, it, was, it, and, and a year that never should have – we should have just lost. But uh, the, the treat that year was that for the next year, he had to send me Black's Barbecue from Lockhart, Texas. So he's supposed to send it to me on the Friday before the Saturday game. And here it is the week before the week of the game, I get this big package of barbecue from blacks. I'm like, Oh, this is supposed to be next week. Oh, well, it's still a big package of barbecue. It was like $170 pack of barbecue, a brisket, two things of ribs, like 12 links of sauces. It was awesome. Oh. But I ended up telling Andrew about it and he called blacks barbecue and said, you guys sent it too early. It's supposed to arrive on Friday. So we can watch the, the UT game. Well, the next Friday, I got a second box, $170 box of barbecue. Wow. Oh, wow. We were, we were in the Blacks barbecue for two weeks. It was have been like kings. Wow. Yeah. Dude, I'm so hungry. <laughs> when is lunch, man? <laughs> I'm not thinking like, I think I have like some beef sticks in the fridge or something. Like that. <laughs> um, uh, I wish I had stuff to, 
you know, like give you hard, fast dates on to promote, but um, I do have a horror short film called Wait For It, which has been caught in post-production for two years now. And it's it's so close to being done. Like they were about to do the subtitles on it and, um, but it's kind of caught in the COVID web right now. Uh, Uh, I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm optimistic that we'll be able to get, wait for it out. You know, I don't know. Let's be honest. It'll be next Valentine's day, probably the way this is going. But, um, and I have a a script that I'm really optimistic about called the Hills only have eyes for you. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) And it's exactly what you think it is. So, um, so, you know, fingers crossed, there'll be more to say about that coming up, but you know, that's all, you know, writer's fantasy at this point. Um, so as of right now, we just have to wait for it. You have to wait <laughs> for it and then wait for it again for the Hills only have eyes for you. Yes. Okay. Um, Am I the only one singing Hamilton in my head right now? No, no. I, I, I was just about to say, I'm willing to wait for it. God damn it. I'm willing to wait for it. <laughs> And I don't know, I'm, you can cut, cut this out, but I, I mean, I, I want to talk about the elephant in the room, which, um, you know, it's May 31st, 2020. We're going to be looking back on this time in our history for hundreds of years, potentially. And I, I just want to say, I think it's all, it's well past time. I'm going to get on my soapbox. It's a well past time for all of us to really sort of take a beat and, and look within ourselves and look around and say, am I really ready to not be more engaged with my community and be more engaged with with the direction things are going. I'm not advocating right or left or one side or the other, but um, I would like to promote, let's all, let's all take a little less time scrolling cat pictures and a little bit more time actively thinking and being engaged and involved in the future of this country. We're not gonna cut that. No, cause that's, that's well said and right on. Well, now I feel like my thing's dumb. <laughs> barbecue is important yeah barbecue for sure is going to be important no matter what the future holds we still need self-care man yep. Thanks. all right adrian tell tell everybody where they can find you you can find me on twitter at junkyard poet mostly i'm just playing square enix games right now because the world is ending and everybody's in quarantine <laughs> uh and you can find me on instagram at saint of unicorns at saint all spelled out uh where you can see lots more pictures of my dogs. I am Sooner DVM on Twitter and <laughs> I don't need any comment from south of the Red River. I am Sooner DVM on Twitter and I'm Donna underscore Leahy on Instagram. I'm not terribly active on either. You will get full updates on my Animal Crossing Island on Twitter. But because Britain reacted that way, I just got to tell you real quick about my favorite play in any Do you hear how Oklahoma game. she is right now? <laughs> I think she has gone full on the Skogie accent here. Red dirt. My favorite play from any OU game, OU Texas game, I think it was the 2000 game. And Texas was backed right up to their end zone. And uh, Stoops <laughs> told Roy Williams, whatever you do, you don't, your feet don't leave the ground. And the play went into action. Roy Williams jumped over the entire line, knocked the ball out of Chris Sims' hands right into Teddy Lehman's hands. And Teddy Lehman just pranced right into the end zone. It was beautiful. And I love it. And I am enjoying the pain on Britain's face right now. (laughs) What were we talking about? (laughs) Britain had an out-of-body experience, Donna. He heard nothing. (laughs) Just full dissociation right there. I guess I'll hear it when I listen to the podcast. Don't <laughs> there, sure, 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 sure. There you go. 
Uh, I am on Twitter and Instagram. I'm Callista77. Twitter is a lot of Star Wars nonsense. And then pictures of my cats on Instagram. So it's fine. I have something to plug that I forgot because I'm an idiot. What you got? Uh, Murder Storytellers has a new anthology out called When the Sirens Have Faded. And the theme behind this one is what happens after the horror movie is over. Nice. I like that. Some good stuff in that one. Yeah. You can find that where you buy books at a murder of storytellers.com also well one thank you guys so much for taking time to come and and talk with us we do appreciate it we also appreciate thank you guys everyone for listening we are on social media we're at beyond cabin on twitter our instagram and facebook is beyond the cabin in the woods we also have a web page which is just if it's another way to grab our episodes which is beyond the cabin in the woods.com we are part of the Gumby Cat Network. And as always, thank you so much, Billy, for being an awesome editor and making us sound fantastic. Thank you, Billy. Thank you, Billy. Hi, Billy. All right. Thank you guys so much. Bye. Bye. Bye, everybody. And don't read the Latin. Do you know what horror is? Gumby Cat Productions. Podcasts for podcast people. Meow. Meow.